Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, UK. Thank you for joining us on the journey, wherever you are in the world. You can find out more about who we are and what we're up to at EmmausRoad.com. So we're doing this series looking at digging in. Uh, I kicked it off on Vision Sunday and uh, then we had a brilliant talk from Bill. Uh, and today I'm absolutely thrilled to introduce uh, one of the leaders of the church, Hannah and Adam lead our evening service. Uh, Hannah is just a, a brilliant a theologian. She disciples people beautifully and uh, she is, uh, um, as you can see, expectant in every sense of the word. So please, uh, let's just put our hands together and welcome Hannah Heather. Good morning. So lovely to be with you this morning. And um, as Pete says, we're going to be continuing our Digging In series. And so if you do have your Bibles with you, we're going to be looking at Genesis 26. So do feel free to grab those out. And this year as a church, we have decided that our vision for a year is digging in. And we're in a season where we're looking at what it means to dig wells, build altars, and pitch tents. And we're looking at the story of Isaac in Genesis 26. And in this moment in the story, Isaac finds himself kind of in between. So he has just left the land of Gerar and he's moved into the valley. He's kind of in between locations. And he also finds himself in a place in this valley where he's standing between the promises that God has given him and the fulfillment of those promises. He's sort of in this in-between place. And it's in this place of in-between that Isaac chooses to stop, to dig a well, to build an altar, and to pitch his tent. So let's read together Genesis 26, verses 22 to 25. He moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. Lord Jesus, would you speak to us this morning through your word? Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us? Amen. So today we're thinking about building an altar, the act of stopping everything to build a sacrifice, offer a sacrifice of worship to God. And in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was the means by which a sinful people could encounter and draw close to a holy God. And what they would do is they would sacrifice a sinless animal on the altar as a kind of means of atoning, paying for their sin 
and they could then draw close and worship God. And this is what Isaac is doing in this passage as he builds his altar and calls upon the name of the Lord. And you know, I think there's actually something quite challenging to our paradigms of worship in this process of the sacrificial system and building an altar because I don't know about you, but it's quite easy sometimes to, to walk into church and to actually not, not really make any kind of preparations, but to walk in and sort of choose whether to engage with that moment of worship or not. But for Isaac, this moment of worship was so intentional, right? This building of an altar, preparing the sacrifice and choosing to worship God. There's a real intentionality of worship here that I think we can learn from Isaac. And so this sacrificial system, this process of offering the the sacrificial animal and worshipping God, it was a temporary and imperfect means of atonement. Basically, how it worked was that the sins of mankind, because of the sins, the animal would be killed in order to atone for the sins and bridge this gap. But it was a temporary method. It was kind of a signpost to what was coming next in the person of Jesus. See, God is passionate about restoring his relationship with mankind. And so in the person of Jesus, what God does is he replaces all the animal sacrifices and he provides for us the perfect sacrifice, which puts an end to the sacrificial system and offers us perfect, restored access to the presence of God. This is the amazing good news of our faith in Jesus. Jesus says, I've come to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. In other words, Jesus' death on the cross paid for the wages of our sin, which was death. So we can now live in perfect relationship with God. And even better, the New Testament then makes this claim that Jesus' death was not final right, that he rose from the grave. And so he is the final sacrifice that broke the power of sin and death forever, which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He's the perfect sacrifice to which all these other sacrifices were pointing. And so as we come to this passage today, to the concept of building an altar, we come with this incredible gratitude that actually for us, the altar no longer involves any bloodshed. Instead, as we come to build an altar to offer worship and praise and draw close to God, we do so with this incredible freedom to draw near. No matter what we've done, right? No matter the week that you've had, no matter the sin that might entangle us, because the perfect sacrifice of Jesus has paid the price. And so as we come to worship today, we do so with complete freedom. We have perfect peace and union with God. If I was channeling my inner is way, I would say, is there an amen in the house for this good news? And so today we're going to be thinking about worship. And worship in church is... I think one of those areas that can be hard to get right. 
I saw someone tagged Peter Burton in a post on Facebook recently. Some frustrated worship leaders had written this. And they said this. After listening carefully over the past several years, we believe we have finally determined what those who attend our church really want in worship. More fast songs in the opening praise time and more slow songs in the opening praise time. More of those wonderful, lovely old hymns and less of those stupid, dead, old, boring hymns. More repetition of songs so they can be learned and meditated upon. And less repetition of songs because it gets so boring singing the same thing over and over. More of those lovely arrangements with extra instruments and less of those showy arrangements with all the noisy <laughs> instruments. The band to play in the middle of the platform where they can be seen, back behind the plants where they won't be a distraction. Louder, softer, faster, slower, more often and not at all. <laughs> Pray for Peter Burton. <laughs> Worship can feel hard to get right, but you know, the truth is, is that I think so often we face these problems because at its root, we sometimes approach worship as entertainment rather than encounter. See, the way I approach entertainment is, does this please me? The way that I approach encounter is, does this please God? And from the moment we kind of step in here, into this place, and we gather together like this, the opportunity we have is to corporately, in one voice, lift up an offering of worship, to step in to a place of encounter with the living God and draw close to the one who has captured our hearts. That's the invitation of worship. See, it isn't about preference, it is about presence. And here at Emmaus, our vision for worship, for building an altar, is that this would be a space of radical encounter and pursuing the presence of God. The English word worship comes from the Old English, worth-ship. It is telling God what he is worth. It's the act of ascribing ultimate value to someone or something in a way that just engages your whole being. In the Bible, we read about David who danced before the Lord. And I know we're all incredibly British here, so I'm not necessarily advocating that we all should dance all Sunday morning. But, do you know, in thinking about this, if we never dance before the Lord, if this is never a part of our worship, then there is actually an aspect, a paradigm of worship that I'm going to miss because I haven't engaged my whole being in that way. Worship is ascribing ultimate worth. And you know, the truth is we're always worshiping something, right? Our lives are always ascribing ultimate worth and value to something. Tim Keller says this, the world is not simply divided into people who worship and people who don't. The world is divided into people who worship things that will distort their life and those who worship the only proper object worthy of the worship of your soul. And I wonder today if there's anything that's been clambering for your affections recently, right? Vying for your heart a little bit for ultimate worth in your life. As we worship him this morning, we remember that every act of worship of God actually heals us 
of the worship of that which distorts us. Because this is what we were created for, right? My heart was made to worship the living God. This is the ultimate need, the highest calling of my life. Worship is what puts us right back where we were always meant to be. As we lift up and exalt the King of Kings and allow everything else to come back into its proper perspective, right? Those mini gods that clamber for our attention, the fears, the ambitions, the pleasures, the distractions of our lives, these things kind of slowly fade away in the place of worship. And all that's left is this beautiful person of Jesus. And what's so important, I think, is that worship doesn't just have a place when our lives are going really well. As followers of Jesus, the call is to offer a sacrifice of praise, regardless of our circumstances, simply because he is worthy, right? He is worth it. In this story of Isaac in Genesis 26, Isaac is in the valley, right? The Bible tells us that right before this, he was in this land of Gerar, and he was flourishing. He was prosperous, but he was so prosperous that the king actually asked him to leave. He throws him out because he was prospering too much. And so can you imagine that right at the high point of your life where it feels like everything is going well, God is on your side, everything is flourishing, and then you have to leave, go into a valley, and start all over again. And then as he starts digging these wells, then there's loads of disruption and chaos because the locals start fighting him and saying, these are our wells. So he then moves into this place of kind of strife and and fighting and then in this moment that we pick up this morning he's finally dug a well where he's able to settle and he has this amazing encounter with God who offers him this promise verse 23 I am the God of your father Abraham do not be afraid for I am with you I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Israel Abraham. And this is an incredible promise. But right now, Isaac is still very much in the valley. Right? He's standing somewhere in between this promise and its fulfillment. But right now, he's still in the valley and he's not yet seen that come true. And standing in that in between place, Isaac's response is to build an altar of worship to get on his knees and worship the living God. Because here's the thing, with or without the fulfillment of the promise, God is still worthy of all the praise that Isaac can muster. Worship is always the appropriate response to the living God, wherever we find ourselves. Whether life is great, or if we're honest, it's really challenging right now. Whether we're in the valley, we're standing somewhere in between God's promises and their fulfillment, waiting, hoping. Whatever our circumstances, worship is the reflex of the people of God. You know, worshiping God like this when I don't feel like it, it isn't fake, it's faith, right? This is what faith looks like in these moments. We don't wait until we see the fulfillment or the prosperity before we build our altar. 
As people of faith, we worship God, not for what he's going to do for us, but because of who he is. You know, the truth is, even if God didn't do anything else for me for the rest of my life, I have reason enough to worship him every moment for the rest of eternity. He is that good. He is that beautiful. He is that worthy of all my praise. You know, the amazing thing is that we do get lots out of worship ourselves, but we must make sure that our worship is never driven by what we receive, but rather focused on what we give, what we offer to the King of Kings. You know, we often have people coming along to our um, our congregation in the evening who are maybe new Christians, and this whole thing of like coming together and singing a song is quite weird, and <laughs> people don't always get it at first, which I completely understand. But what often gets people tripped up is this idea that of you know the dynamics and what is actually happening. And and we find when we explain to people it's not about what you're receiving in that moment, it's what you're giving. It actually takes all the pressure off and it becomes this beautiful moment, this beautiful opportunity to just surrender and lift up the King of Kings. And he's so good, he just pours out loads of good things upon us as well. So it's just a beautiful moment. But it must be driven by what we are offering. He's the majestic God, right, who created every beautiful thing that we can see. He crafted us every little detail from the hairs on our heads. He brought us to life with his breath. He's the God of the cross, right, the God who gave up his very life in order to rescue us from our sin and shame. He's the most majestic, glorious, holy being imaginable. And he's the one who calls us by name. He's worthy. He's worthy of all the praise that we can give him. I love that story. Um, In Daniel chapter 3, we get this this brilliant story with Daniel's three mates, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when I was growing up in Sunday school, our Sunday school teacher was like, they're really hard names to remember. So the way you remember it is, shake the bed, make the bed, and away we go. (laughs) Did anyone else ever know? Yes, one person. No, no, everyone awoke and looked at me like I was barking mad. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these guys, they're Daniel's friends, they're in this land, and they, they basically arrive at a moment of warfare over their worship. And um, they're in trouble with the king for refusing to bow down to the king's idols, one of which was literally an idol of gold. Side note, the world has idols that it wants you to bow down and worship. Idols of money, success, power, sex, these are so real. There's a very active war going on over your heart and your worship. Because here's the thing, as much as there is a God who deserves our worship, there is an enemy who desires it. As much as there is a God who is worthy of our praise, there is an enemy who is vying for it. Worship is warfare. It is not going to be a straightforward thing in our lives. The enemy wants our hearts. He wants our adoration. He loves to trip us up 
with the idols of this world. The temptation to do this, I think, is as real for us as it was for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But they refuse to bow down. Their worship belongs to the Most High God, and they will not share their hearts or their worship with anything else. And the king is incredibly angry at this defiance. You know, the world will always be baffled when you refuse to bow down to the idols of this world, sometimes even angered. And he's so angry that he gives them this ultimatum. Worship the idols or be thrown into a fiery furnace. And this is their response. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. I love this response so much. Our God will deliver us, but even if he does not, we will worship him and only him forever. See, when we're standing between the promise and the fulfillment, we build an altar of praise, right? Regardless of our circumstances, this is true, defiant worship. And that's the kind of worship that seems to usher in the supernatural. If you know this story, you'll know that the king, enraged by this defiance, increases the heat of the furnace by seven times. So much so that the, the soldiers who are tasked with throwing the men into the furnace, they all die just by approaching the flames. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they walk in to the furnace and they walk around inside of it. And King Nebuchadnezzar is watching this happen with amazement. And then he sort of looks closer and asks his servants, didn't we throw three men in? I see four men in the fire. Because this radical, defiant, worshipping moment ushers in the supernatural. Jesus is then in the furnace, walking around with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Totally freaked out, Nebuchadnezzar tells them to come out of the furnace. And I love this. It says this. They walk out completely unscathed. The fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Don't you love that detail? They don't even smell like the fire that they were just in. They are so untouched by these circumstances. Worship in the valley, in the hard times between promise and fulfillment can be one of the most supernatural things that we can do. Here at Emmaus, I believe we have a vision to be a church that worships God right in the trenches, in the midst of our circumstances, sometimes regardless of our feelings, because when we do that, we have this opportunity to bring him a sacrifice of praise, something that cost us. And this won't always be easy. It will be deeply costly and challenging sometimes, but he is worth it. He is so worth every moment of it. 
The call to worship is the highest call of our lives. It's what we were made for. I think being around church, it can be easy to get really busy and sometimes distracted away from that calling. Sometimes it's easy to take our eyes off what we were really made for. And you know, godly ambition and vision is real and important. But you know, I think that there are times when we're not called to be movers and shakers, but we're called to be the moved and the shaken. A community who are just so in love, right? So moved by this beautiful, magnificent person of Jesus. A community who is shaken by his majesty and glory. And that's why this is our vision for this year. That's why we're going after digging in this year of, of building wells, digging wells, sorry, and building altars. We want this year to be focused on prayer and worship and encounter, a year to really run after this, a year to be moved and shaken. I think of Peter, the disciple of Jesus, and he's like a classic mover and a shaker sort of guy. He's just loads of energy and enthusiasm and always jumping in. And there's this brilliant moment at the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew 17. And Peter and James and John are up on the mountainside with Jesus. And they have this incredible revelation where Jesus is transfigured to, to, so they can see him in his glory along with Moses and Elijah. And it's this profound moment. And Peter, being Peter, <laughs> being a mover and a shaker, he thinks, I'm here to, you know, build the kingdom. And I'm obviously here to build and do something. And so he comes up to Jesus and he literally says, Jesus, it's good that I'm here. <laughs> How often is this us, right? Oh, Jesus, it's good that I'm here. <laughs> There's so much to be done in Guildford. I'm ready. He's good that I'm here. I can build a shelter for you and I'll build one for Moses and I'll build one for Elijah and it's going to be great and I will build. And <laughs> the Bible, it's so, it's so brilliant, it tells us that a cloud kind of just comes down and just sort of envelopes Peter, just kind of like, shh, <laughs> and the voice of the Lord is heard. And Peter and James and John just are totally overcome by the glory of the Lord, and they just fall on their faces in a moment of worship. And after this amazing encounter, there's this beautiful line, verse 8 of Matthew 17. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. I want this to be a line over my life. Right? When they looked up, they saw no one but Jesus. See, Peter wasn't there to do stuff and build stuff. right? He wasn't there to be a mover and a shaker. He was there to be moved, to be shaken by the beautiful presence of God. And our vision as a church is to be a people devoted to worship. That every time we gather like this on a Sunday, we get on our face before God and we give him all we've got so that we would look up and go out from this place and see no one and nothing but Jesus. That whatever stresses and strains our week has held, whatever we're walking through right now, that we would be so moved, so shaken by his beautiful presence among us that we would lift him up in worship we would see nothing but his face. 
Do you know, when you, when you bow down, it's actually the only time when your heart is elevated higher than your head. Worship is, is a moment of heartfelt engagement where we choose him with our hearts, where we choose to be moved by him. We started this morning by saying that Jesus' death on the cross brought an end to the sacrificial system. So when we build an altar of praise, we no longer need any bloodshed to draw close to God. But a beautiful shift takes place in the New Testament where Paul tells us, you no longer need to bring a sacrifice to the altar. You are the sacrifice. Romans 12 verse 1 says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In other words, the time of animals dying on the altar is finished. But the call to those who follow Christ is a radical laying down of our lives to follow Jesus. Worship that's not just about the moments on a Sunday morning or in your quiet time where you're actively worshiping. Worship that overflows into every area of our lives. When we choose to honor him with our bodies, when we choose kingdom principles like generosity, a lifestyle of worship is a lifestyle just totally surrendered to following Jesus wherever he might lead. And as we sacrifice our time, our resources, our money, our comfort, God takes that offering and he always does something remarkable with it. We're going to respond. Are you guys going to come? Yeah. Getting a nod from the worship pastor. Um, we're going to respond just as, as Peter's getting ready here. Um, why don't we stand to our, our feet together and we're going to respond in worship. Um, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be at wildfires together. And I hope that loads of you will be there with us. And um, at Wildfires, we're celebrating this moment at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit falls like tongues of fire upon the disciples. And they then go out to change the world. And I've been reflecting a lot about this fire that falls on their heads. And you know, fire represents loads of things in scripture, God's presence, purity, all kinds of things. But fire is also often the way that a sacrifice is received, right? You remember Adam spoke a few weeks ago about Elijah who calls down fire upon the sacrifice. And it strikes me that as the disciples were gathered in that place, praying and worshiping, they're actually sacrificing their lives before God and fire falls upon them. Right, but not like the animals who are burned up and consumed. This fire falls upon them and they are filled up and sent out. And so Peter's going to take over now. We're going to move into a time of worship. But as we do so, my prayer for us is that we might be a people who climb up onto that altar again this morning, who offer our lives, our hearts, all that we have, that fire might fall upon us 
and send us out.